Thank you, Adam. I'm uh, always excited to be up here. It's a phenomenal opportunity for me to uh, grow in my giftings and uh, in the study of the word and to be able to share that with you. Uh, as Adam said, it's in his, his prayer there, I'm, I'm actually starting a, uh, a Master's of Divinity through uh, Southern in September or October. Uh, it's the same program that Blair Hansen is currently in. So I'll be doing that by distance from home, so I'll be uh, here with you for the duration of my studies. And uh, certainly as a part of that, the call of ministry um, that I'm certainly feeling more and more uh, having opportunities like this. Uh, is just a huge blessing as I, Grace and I, uh, together uh, work towards the, the reality that uh, an MDiv brings us to in the call to ministry that, that we're working through. So thank you for this, uh, this chance to do this with you, uh, increasingly so. Uh, this morning, we're going to spend time, we're back in Philippians. We're going to be in, in the end of chapter 2, and uh, before we get to the passage, I just want to provide us with some big picture context, not just on the book of Philippians uh, itself, but just on epistles in general and, and how these letters come to be and how we make sense of them and how we read them, uh, just to change our thinking a little bit on how we uh, go through these books uh, in the Bible. So what I want us to do is to put ourselves in the place of the early church. Think about the early first century uh, in various areas of Rome if you wanted to communicate to one another, especially city to city, Rome to Philippi, it was several weeks' journey. It took a long time to get there. Was, transit was slow. So letter writing was really the only means of communication you had if you weren't going to travel there yourself. And even then when you wrote a letter, it took a long time to get there. You couldn't do it very often. Uh, and this letter of Paul to Philippi, he was able to send because Epaphroditus was going back. Paul had a courier. He had someone he trusted, he knew, to send this letter with. It's not like it was going in, you know, the weekly Roman post. Right? He didn't have that opportunity. If he wanted to communicate with the church, the only way to do it was if he knew someone that was going there. So when you think about it that way, limited opportunity, infrequent uh, chances to do this, if you were going to send a letter and you were Paul and you were writing to a church that you love and a community that you know, a church that you participated in previously, it's going to take some time. It's going to be a lot of thinking and prayer and, and deep consideration as to what this letter looks like. It wouldn't be like writing an email. You know, we do those in two, three minutes, we bang it out, it's not a big deal. But if you're writing a letter to a church and you have such limited opportunities to do this, it's going to take some time. Think about it like a, a symphony or a full-length movie, right? We watch a 90-minute movie at the theater or at home or whatever, and we see uh, lots of thinking that went into, I don't know, all the different elements, character development and theme and all these things we see traced around. There's music and there's all of these aspects. We really ought to think about epistles like that. Uh, there would have been drafts of the letter. There was dictation as Paul spoke and somebody wrote what he said. They would have gone back and edited and revised. And there's sections of Paul's letters where he, he even goes back and says, look, like I'm writing this with my own hand. Look how much I mean this. Or he signs them off himself. There was a process to this that was quite extensive and complex. And for that reason, we often find, at least I do, the epistles hard to read. They're not simple necessarily. Right? We get to an epistle and we expect it to read like an email. It's going to be clear, there's two, three points, they're in order, they make sense. But they're not like that. They're much more complicated. 
Uh, in addition, they had to be written in a way that they were understandable and memorable when they were read aloud, because that was the, the medium that they were delivered to the church. So Paul wrote this letter. It went with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus got to the church. They gathered. And the way that letter was delivered is Epaphroditus read it to the church aloud. Lots of people wouldn't have been able to read it anyway, even if they had it. They weren't uh, educated in that way. Uh, and they only had one copy. So they're very limited in how the letter was presented. So it had to be understandable, memorable, as read aloud. And we did that a few weeks ago as a church. In addition, if it wasn't complicated enough, Paul was trained in uh, what we call a formal rhetoric. It was the, the way of communicating and speaking and speech making uh, in the academic circles of the time. So you presented an argument in a specific way in order to debate with someone. And Paul was formally trained in that for sure. Uh, that argument typically looks like some kind of organized, logical pattern of speech. So the best example we have, uh, and even in our own church, is when we went through the book of Romans, right? That's a really organized set of theological argument that Paul puts before us. And we can work through that, and his structure in the argument, the pattern that he follows, and the, the links we can follow throughout, and the order of things makes that letter much easier to understand because he was speaking uh, in that form of rhetoric. So Philippians follows that pattern uh, of that rhetorical speech where you'd have a, a personal introduction and conclusion. We have that in Philippians. And then this big logical set of arguments in the middle. And Paul, in addition, weaves in tons of Old Testament references, pretty much every second word it feels like. Uh, he weaves in complex themes all the way through beginning to end. These letters can get complicated. So if we look at Philippians, it has that structure, personal introduction and conclusion, and then argumentation in the middle. And if we were to summarize the book of Philippians, Paul is essentially saying uh, he exhorts the church and encourages the church to pursue their individual and corporate sanctification. You personally and together need to grow in these things. Specifically, they need to work on their progress in the faith. They need to keep growing, keep learning, keep working, keep becoming more like Christ. That growing in the faith will be most demonstrated in their unity as a body. Right? They had some disunity of some kind. We don't really know what it is. But their unity would demonstrate their growth in the faith. Uh, and they can follow the example of Christ and of other godly people to learn how to do these things. That's the central message. And through that message, Paul weaves in an encouragement to the church. He, he tells them about being joyful. He tells them about being sanctified. He tells them about the mission of the gospel. And so many more things are weaved throughout. So that's what's going on in the book of Philippians. Uh, and what I want us to see this morning is how our section, which is the end of chapter 2, fits perfectly into the message that Paul is communicating in the book as a whole. What I want us to see when I read it in a moment, and based on what I've just said, is that our passage didn't just land where it did by accident. Paul didn't kind of think in the middle of his letter, oh, I should tell them, we're going to see in a sec, about Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's there on purpose. Paul is accomplishing something uh, along with the purpose of his letter in including this section. So with all that said, uh, I'm going to read now then from Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. 
how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Lord, I pray that as we spend uh, some time here just working through your word and and trying to understand uh, what's so important about Timothy and Epaphroditus, that we would uh, just see how incredibly applicable their lives are to ours, and that we would embrace uh, the truths from your word here this morning, and they would impact us deeply, that we would live uh, more and more for you. In your name, amen. So we've already established just by the nature of an epistle that this passage has to belong. It didn't just land here. Paul didn't just, you know, spit out this letter in five, ten minutes. He worked on it. There was time. There was investment of of emotion and and thought. So this is here for a reason. And there's a couple of them that we're going to work through in our time together. The very first reason uh, is based on the immediate context Prior to this, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul has talked about his trial. He says, you know, I'm I'm on trial, and there's a judgment coming against me, and I will possibly live, I will possibly die. And that was the sermon we went through a number of weeks ago, the passage we went through that said, you know, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, because it's to be with Christ. No matter how this ends, it's for Christ, Paul said. And then he goes through the example of uh, the humility of Christ in particular. And then right before our section in chapter 2, verse 17, he's just uh, exhorted the church to do a bunch of things, to, to uh, be united together and to serve one another well. And he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's saying, even if this ends with me being poured out as an offering, my execution, my death, rejoice with me no matter what. Whether I come to see you soon, which is what he says in our section, or whether I'm never able to see you again. And he comes out of that and he says, I might die, but you don't just need me. Let me tell you about these other two guys. Let me tell you about Timothy. Let me tell you about Epaphroditus. These other fantastic men in the faith that if I'm gone, you need not despair. There are more men that the Lord has raised up in your church. So that's the immediate contextual reason why this passage makes sense here. Uh, There are a bunch of other ones that we'll go through now. Why Paul wrote this the way he did. Why he included it in the middle of his letter. So what I want us to see is that all of the themes and topics of the epistle are really at play in this section. Uh, Paul's going to talk about the needs of the Philippian church, which he's talked about before. He's going to talk about joy, which comes up over and over again. He's going to encourage them, which he's been doing throughout the letter. 
Uh, he's going to talk about the gospel, which is a constant topic in Philippians. Uh, sanctification, having role models in our faith. All of these things come out through the letter, and they all appear in this section. He doesn't just talk about them because it came to mind while he was writing, uh, but because their lives and their actions are a key part in how he encourages and exhorts the church. Uh, this is not a simple one, two, three argument Paul is making, so we're going to work through these themes kind of one at a time just to see how exactly this fits. So why does it belong? Why is it here? How does this work in the letter to the Philippians? So if First reason, I guess it's really the second one, but we'll call it number one because that's what the slide says. Uh, because real faith for Paul and Christians doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. We look at this and we say, well, isn't it, like, why didn't Paul just write about unity and joy and the gospel the way he usually does? Like, why didn't he just write a logical argument, give some good theology for unity? He's done that already. Why is it necessary or helpful to talk about people? In explaining unity in the church. Well, for Paul, theology is born out in real life. Theology is not in its own little corner over here where you work it out and then you just kind of do the church thing with it. It's everywhere for Paul. Faith is everywhere. The gospel is his whole life. So he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus here because he wants to teach the church through them. He wants to exhort the church through them. He wants to encourage the church through them. Evidently, it was more effective for Paul to explain unity and joy by using their lives than it was to write another theological treatise about it. He already gave them that. In addition, now he's giving them the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. We think, at least I think we do, we think this is so strange because we often isolate the reality of the gospel and our faith in our lives, right? We kind of put it over here in this little corner, this box. And it's, it's theoretical, it's, it's not really all that real, it's kind of ethereal, it's this thing we do in our minds, the faith is over here, and all the practical elements of our life are over here, and they never, the two shall meet, right? We think about theology and we say, yes, unity in the church is so good, and we should all think the same way, and our minds should be united, as Paul said in the previous section, but we just kind of leave it at that, and we still, you know, go out in the foyer and, and ignore half the church because we don't really like them a whole lot. Right? The, the, the bridge we don't often build between the theology we think about and the practicality, uh, the practical things of our lives. So think about that. Do we unite those things? Is the gospel, is theology born out in our whole life? Or is our life dominated by worldly thinking instead? How do we shop? How do I own a house? How do I manage debt? How do we think about uh, earthly things? How do we think about life? How do we think about death? Is it through the lens of the gospel in Jesus Christ? Or is it through the lens of worldly wisdom? Is my thinking in my life permeated by the gospel? Uh, Paul saw the reality of the gospel in his whole life. He talks about his imprisonment through the lens of the gospel. He talks about the life of, Paul, uh, of Timothy and Epaphroditus through the lens of the gospel. And specifically with them, he commends them because, as he wrote earlier in chapter 2, their manner of life was worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so they're worthy of commendation. So that's the first reason why he writes about it, because why not? He doesn't need to write a theological treatise to explain everything. People are an excellent example of 
practical theology of orthopraxy in the church. The second reason he writes about them is to present Timothy and Epaphroditus to the church. He does this for a couple of reasons. The first reason uh, is to practically exhort the church in unity and joy. He's already written exhortations to them about this. You know, be of one mind that you have in Christ. Uh, He writes elsewhere, uh, you know, rejoice in the Lord. So he's writing these exhortations in the letter, but he also exhorts them through Timothy and Epaphroditus to these things. So earlier in chapter 2, let's talk about unity first. Uh, Chapter 2, 1 to 5 says, Paul writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Timothy is a Christian that lives this. He lives and breathes unity and humility. Paul writes in our section at verse 20 to 22 of Timothy, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Paul identified the issue of unity in the church in Philippi. And he wrote to them about what unity looks like in that earlier section I read. But what better antidote to a church dealing with uh, selfishness and disunity than to send a man like this? What better way to teach a church to be unified as a body, to have the mind of Christ, than to send them someone who already gets it? Timothy goes to be with them. He exudes selflessness. He desires unity in the church. He seeks the betterment of others above himself. What a phenomenal antidote uh, to a complicated problem. Epaphroditus also uh, provides Paul an opportunity to talk about unity. This is more of a practical example. Uh, He says in verse 28 and 29, I am eager to send Epaphroditus to you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And later he writes, Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul calls the church pretty specifically here to celebrate the return of Epaphroditus. He comes back, and the instruction is, Rejoice, presumably together, honor him, presumably together. And to honor someone, especially in this cultural context, was not just a handshake and a pat on the back. To honor someone uh, in the way they would have was a big deal. And we recognize that too. If we were to honor someone coming back to us, it would be more than, you know, a call from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Look who's back. Look who's returned. We'd give them opportunity to share about their journey and their experience and their learnings and, and share how the church was able to help them and share how the Lord worked through them and pray for them and probably celebrate them with a potluck or something. You know, that's, that's honoring someone in our context and in theirs they had something similar. So Paul saw the return as Epaphroditus for an opportunity for unity. He's coming back. Get together, all of you. Be united around him as you rejoice and honor the work that he has done for the Lord. So that's the first uh, thing Paul does, is he exhorts the church in unity through Timothy and Epaphroditus. He also exhorts the church and encourages the church to be joyful in the Lord through these two men. Uh, Throughout the letter, you'll read all kinds of places, Paul calls them to rejoice and be joyful. Chapter 3 starts with, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. If you go through the letter, there's lots of occasions where Paul talks about joy. 
And Timothy and Epaphroditus here provide practical opportunities for that Christ-like joy in the church. Uh, Paul sends Epaphroditus so that the church would rejoice when he gets there. Because he was ill, and now he's not. And he's returned. He made it back. They probably thought he was going to die. They can rejoice at his return. Uh, Additionally, Paul sends Timothy so that Paul can hear about the church and get an update on how they're doing and uh, what the people are up to and how the Lord is blessing them. And he wants to be cheered by that news that he could rejoice. Uh, And finally, he sends Timothy. He's going to send Timothy later once he's heard about the result of his trial. So Timothy's going to go with the news that either Paul will be shortly freed or Paul has been executed. And in the preceding section, Paul says, rejoice either way. Whether I'm coming to you soon, rejoice in that and we'll rejoice together. Or I've died and Timothy is coming to help you as a church, rejoice in that too because I'm with the Lord. Uh, Lots of opportunities for rejoicing. If you look through the letter to the Philippians and you see how Paul encourages the church to be joyful... Uh, I think you'll find it pretty surprising and very different compared to our worldly thinking. Paul doesn't encourage them to rejoice in anything of this world. There's nothing in there about rejoicing in possessions, material blessings, material uh, things, wealth, real estate, your retirement plan, uh, authority of any kind, even your family and friends or any kind of success. That's not the source of joy for Paul. All those things come and go. They rise and fall. They fail. And if those things are the source of our joy, we we really don't have any hope for joy in our life. Instead, we ought to uh, follow Paul's call here. And what do we rejoice in? If you go through the letter, Paul calls people to rejoice in other Christians. Right? Rejoice uh, at Timothy. Look at him. He's A man who lives selflessness. He prioritizes other people. He works for the ministry of Christ more than anybody else. Rejoice in him. Rejoice in Epaphroditus. Look at the work he's done for the ministry of the Lord and coming to me and bringing your gift and staying with me and serving the Lord here. Rejoice in the mission of the gospel. Rejoice when the gospel is preached under any circumstance. Rejoice when there are miracles. Epaphroditus didn't die. He was healed by the grace of God. Uh, Rejoice in someone else's faith when someone comes to the Lord. Rejoice when glory is given to God. So think about this. How do we rejoice? Why do we rejoice? Does our joy and our sorrow move with the people and the work of God? Or are we more joyful or sorrowful based on our practical circumstance? Right? Or are you grieved and sorrowful with the Baumans this week? We ought to be. Do we rejoice with them also that Ray is with the Lord? They know that. Yeah. Do we rejoice with Adam and Angie that they, they're feeling a clear call to ministry to go overseas? And do we mourn in sorrow with them also that they're leaving? Yeah, that should move us more than any practical circumstance of our life. The people and work of the Lord. We are not to rejoice in earthly blessings or things, but in the Lord, his people, and his work. So Paul writes this about Timothy and Epaphroditus to exhort the church. He also writes this to encourage them. One of the big themes of the letter, the consistent thing Paul is doing, is encouraging the church. 
Uh, it's pretty clear that they were facing some kind of opposition. We don't know what, but it was, it was escalating in nature. It was getting worse. And sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to them was a part of Paul encouraging them more than his letter could do. These men are going to come to you to encourage you and build you up. So let's look at them both. Timothy first. Well, why did Timothy go to Philippi? From that little section we read, we can pull out three reasons. Uh, first, Paul wants to hear about them. He wants to know how the church is doing. Uh, second, Timothy is, is genuinely concerned for them. He, he's concerned for the church and their growth and their unity in Christ. And third, Timothy exemplifies humility and selflessness, which is exactly what Paul is exhorting the church to be and to do. Paul recognized that the needs of the Philippian church uh, were exemplified in the life of Timothy. He said, you need these things. You are not united. You need to have the mind of Christ together. You need to be humble and serve one another first. If you go through the beginning of chapter 2 there again, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Timothy is that guy. He gets it. Paul says more than anybody else, Timothy lives this. So Paul sees the need, he sees the man with the gifts, and he says, Timothy, go. He dispatches him to be with the Philippian church because his gifting matches their needs. And just think about what an encouragement that is in your own life. Think about a time or a situation or a struggle, a difficulty you've been in where you had a, a pretty clear need. Maybe you didn't even know what it was. You couldn't, couldn't put it to words. And in those moments, the Lord often provides for us exactly the gift to match our need. Uh, in a scripture that comes to mind, in a friend who prays, in a song at church on Sunday, in a sermon, in uh, a thought that comes to your mind that's from the Lord, he provides gifts that match our needs. And Timothy was that for the church in Philippi. Uh, in our immediate context, we can think about this as a direct application. This, this is the heart of our elders in calling a new teaching elder and pastor. Right? They have identified through uh, patience and, and wisdom and much thought and prayer what they perceive the needs of the church to be. We need to be encouraged and grow in prayer together. And evangelism and worship are three areas that we can use some encouragement and growth and, and sanctification together in. And in their calling of someone to be a teaching elder, a pastor, they looked for someone whose gifts match our needs. And that's what they've done and are looking for us to affirm. We can also think about this uh, in the context of, of Adam and Angie. They're going from us. They have a set of gifts that have been an incredible blessing to us. But those gifts also match the needs of a seminary and a group of people in Dubai. And the Lord has put a call on them, and by extension a call on us to let them go and to send them. Their gifts match somebody else's needs. And we, like Paul, need to say, okay, go, be blessed. Let us send you out. Let us rejoice as you go, and also mourn that you leave. So that's Timothy. Epaphroditus is also sent to Philippi uh, as an encouragement to the church too. Paul sends him back. He says, because he is longing for you and is distressed because the church heard that he was ill. Epaphroditus was yearning for his church. He missed them deeply and he was distressed because they knew he was sick. It took me a while to think about why the church would have been so distressed uh, and historically, in, in the historical context, this makes sense. They would have got a letter from 
you know, him or Paul or whoever or found maybe they passed a traveler on the way that brought the message back that Epaphroditus was ill. By the time they got the message, it was several weeks old. They don't know if he's even alive anymore. How sick is he? And in this time, if you were going to send a message back home that you were sick, it was probably not a head cold. It was something serious. Paul later says he, he nearly died. So all the church knew is that he was sick, and they probably hadn't heard anything since. They probably thought he was dead by this point. Think about, for them, the responsibility they would have felt. Epaphroditus was a guy from their church who said, yeah, I can, I can go to Rome. I can bring the gift. I can serve Paul. And they said, yeah, we affirm you in that. Let's pray over you. Let's give you the gift. Let's send you out. Bless you in the Lord to go and see Paul. And then the next thing they hear is that he's on death's door. What a weight of responsibility they would have felt. So for Epaphroditus to come back with a letter from Paul and in good health is literally like receiving that brother back from the dead. He's returned to them from death's door, something they never would have anticipated uh, certainly in that time, what an encouragement it would be to see him again. So that's our second reason. Paul writes about these guys and sends them to encourage the church. The third reason, and perhaps the, the biggest one, is to provide these men for the church as an example to follow. Uh, Paul already put forward Christ as the ultimate example of chapter 2. He said, right, follow Jesus in his example of humility that he emptied himself, took the form of a servant born in the likeness of man. That's the ultimate example to follow. Then he gives us more. He uses himself as one later in the letter, and he talks about these two men. And the reason he does so becomes clear later in the letter. If you go to chapter 3, verse 17 and following, Paul writes this. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So Paul says, follow in the footsteps of these men. Follow Christ, follow me, follow Timothy, follow Epaphroditus, that you may stand firm in the Lord. Right? Have good role models, have examples in your life, and not just historical ones, but ones who are alive, who you know, that are examples of the faith to you that you may stand firm. What Paul is recognizing here is what I just think is a reality of, of mankind, a part of who we are, is that we all follow something. There's no man who stands on his own or exists as an island, as it were. We all follow something, whether it's the Lord or not. Even uh, if you go right back to Genesis in the first couple of chapters in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a choice to follow in the way of the Lord or the way of the serpent. Those are the options. And that's a thread you can tug all the way through the Bible. What path are you on? Are you in the way of the Lord or not? Are you the, the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman, to, to use the phrases from Genesis? And that doesn't go away. Man to this day, us included, follow something. So Paul calls the church to be imitators of Christ, of course. But also people in their time and their life who follow in the way of Christ. 
And he says that, that we may stand firm in the faith, but faith, but also because the alternative is terrible. If we're not following people who are following Christ, we're following people who aren't, which is what that middle section at the end of chapter 3 is about. If we're not following people who know the Lord, we're following people whose minds are on earthly things, whose glory is of this world, and whose end is destruction. That's the only other option. So who do you follow? Or do you even think about it? Who are your role models? Have you thought through that? It's an important decision. The people we follow in the footsteps of greatly influence what kind of people we become. Are they believers? Start with that filter. Do they follow the Lord? Uh, and, and work through those decisions. Evaluate who your role models are because it has great effect on your life. Are they people who will encourage us to stand firm in the Lord or people whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame, whose minds are set on earthly things and whose end is destruction. Paul put these men forward, Timothy Epaphroditus himself later as well, we're going to get to in a future chapter, as exemplary men. Their manner of life, back to chapter 2, was worthy of the gospel of Christ. And those are the kind of people we ought to follow It's pretty easy for us to say at this point, well, you know, that's a pretty high bar. Like the calling of the Christian life is intense, impossible even. And we start with Christ. We say, well, obviously we can't follow entirely in the footsteps of Jesus. Like he was the God man. He was without sin. He was divine in nature, fully God. How could we possibly follow that example And then we go to the next ones. We say, well, Paul and Timothy, like those guys were called to ministry. Paul was called on the road by Jesus. He he saw him. Obviously, his life was transformed. Timothy knew Paul. Obviously, his life was transformed. Those guys, uh, of course, were different. But I can't expect that of myself. So we choose to be content with who we are. And we address a sin or two. And maybe if somebody calls us on something, we'll work on it. But we just sit. And that's it. Let me give you, there's a lot of reasons why, but let me give you three immediate reasons that that thinking falls short in Paul's teaching here. First, if we look at Epaphroditus, we don't know a lot about him, just what this letter says, but very, very likely he was a layman from the church. If he was an elder or a, a, the pastor of the church, we would have expected Paul to say that somewhere. Um, he addresses the letter to the elders of the church. Um, you would think that would have come up. That being the case that it didn't, it it seems pretty clear that he was probably a layman. He was a guy that was able to go to Rome for whatever reason, so they sent him. And he's one of the examples. He was not called by Christ on the road uh, like Paul was. He was a layman like us. Second, the recipients of this letter were church members. He's writing to the church of Philippi. They probably wouldn't have been that big, maybe not much bigger than us, made up of all different kinds of people, all different walks of life. And he's calling them to this example of Christ, of Timothy of Epaphroditus, they were expected to follow it, and therefore so are we. And the third reason, the the biggest and most important one, is that if if this is our expectation of the gospel, that we know we come to the Lord, we're called to faith, and that's just kind of it, and we just float through the rest of life, then our gospel is deficient. If your gospel, your understanding of what it means for the Lord to save you, doesn't include your hope and prayer and working on sanctification 
for change in your life that you cannot explain, for the leaving behind of sin that clung to you so fully, the abandonment of those things and the increasing devotion to Christ, you have a a deficient gospel. The gospel is bigger than that. With that in mind, that these examples are for us and that we're called to follow them, let's, let's look at these two men in particular. First, Timothy. Uh, Paul writes here that his Christian life was centered around humbly serving others. That defined him as who he was. He, like no other, Paul says, sought the interests of Jesus Christ, not his own. Put others first. So in his example then, let's think through our own lives. What is the center of my Christian life? Is my salvation, is the gospel built around me? Or do I serve others in humility? How do we even define the gospel? Start there. Is my gospel self-centered? So often it is. Probably the most common definition Uh, among Christians today of the gospel is that it saves me from my sins to admit me to heaven. And that's the whole gospel. And that's more self-centered than most things we say. Right? It's about my sin. It's about my forgiveness. It's about my redemption. It's about my admission to heaven. What a sad gospel. Is our gospel self-centered? Is it only the thing that saves us from our sin? Is that all we think about? Or do we recognize how much bigger it is? The gospel starts with the creation of the world. God created, and he made a good thing, and he put man in that creation to rule it with him. And man chose their own way to disobey the Lord, corrupted creation, corrupted themselves. And the Lord ever since has been choosing people to bring redemption to mankind, to reunite us with him you follow that all the way through noah abraham the people of israel and then the sending of christ jesus comes he lives the life that we could not one without sin right he pays the debt that we could not afford and in exchange taking our punishment for the sin that we have and the sin we inherited jesus gives us grace and forgiveness and blessing in order that we could serve the Lord in this life and beyond it. So we can serve him here, serve his church, serve his people, share the gospel, go to Dubai. And so when this life is over and we're with him, we can rule with him over his great creation. That's a gospel. It's so much bigger than me and my. It's big and it's about the Lord Epaphroditus, Paul also holds up uh, as an example. And he says, Epaphroditus is an example of, of faithfulness in the gospel. He calls him a fellow worker, a soldier, a messenger, a minister to his need. High praise from Paul. Epaphroditus for sure understood that to live was Christ and to die was gain and to be with him. We don't really know the details here, but Paul says Epaphroditus was ill, near to death, and he risked his life. We don't know what that means. Surely it was more than the illness. Perhaps, you know, he got ill on the way and chose to continue. I'm halfway there, I'm sick, but I've got to get to Paul. 
Or he gets to Rome and maybe he gets sick and he says, I'm sick, but I, I have to stay so I can serve Paul. We don't know what happened. We know that he chose to risk his life for the gospel to serve Paul in Rome. And as a result, he nearly died. He knew what it meant to live uh, is Christ and to die is gain. And even so, Paul rejoices that by the grace of God, Epaphroditus survived so he can go back to Philippi. Another thing worth noting here is that even after this long illness and recovery from death's door, it's Paul who's sending Epaphroditus home, and I love this. Epaphroditus didn't say, Paul, I'm tired, I'm sick, I've, I've done as much as I can, I need to go home, I have to go to be with the church. Paul sends him back. He says, Epaphroditus is missing you, he longs for you, he knows you are hurting, thinking he is ill, and I'm going to send him back to you. And I think we can re read from that that Epaphroditus probably would have stayed with Paul to continue to serve him uh, if he could, but Paul sends him back. And think through this, like, do we even consider that kind of thinking in our lives? Do you evaluate the, the work you've done for the kingdom of God? As you evaluate the impact of the gospel on your life, is this something you'd ever see yourself doing? Giving it all for the gospel, risking your life for the gospel, choosing to stay even when it's impossibly hard. That was Epaphroditus. He's a phenomenal example for us even today. So what I hope we, we've seen from this section of the letter is, is why it, it belongs. Why it's so important. First, because real faith doesn't exist in a vacuum. The gospel needs to fill and permeate our whole lives. It was also to present uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus to the church, to practically exhort them in unity and joy, to encourage them and to provide them as an example for the church. Uh, and my prayer would be that we would see all of those things for us. And especially that our lives would be so saturated with the gospel as Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Paul were, that it would impact every part of who we are. And that that gospel would be big, not small. Not one that is defined by saving me from my sin to let me into heaven. One that is defined by a creator God of the universe who made something amazing that mankind uh, ruined and corrupted. And that God is redeeming not just us, but his whole creation that we would be able to rule over it with him and that we would serve him now as best we can in the meantime. With that, then, uh, we'll pray and conclude our time together. Lord, I thank you for this section of your word. Lord, the words of Paul about Timothy and Epaphroditus and just what an incredible testimony they have. Lord, I thank you that Paul was not uh, unwilling to tell us about them, that he wasn't worried about making them prideful or anything, but he, he shared it like it was, and he told us about their humility and their faithfulness. Lord, I pray that we would see in them that the true source of joy are the things that you are doing. Lord, that the, the true source of unity is humility and seeking one another first. And Lord, most of all, that your gospel is very big, and we are a very small part of it, and I pray that we would rejoice more than anything else in, in the fact that you chose us to accomplish your purposes 
and that we would see that more and more day by day. We thank you again for this time together. In your name, amen.